I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for December has been provided by Joyent, the only cloud service that's purpose-built to power today's real-time web and mobile applications. Joyent offers the most cost-effective public and hybrid cloud solutions available today. Here at 5x5, we host all of our web and app servers in the Joyent cloud, so we highly recommend you check them out and sign up for a free trial at Joyent.com. My guest this week is Seth Brown, a data scientist for an internet analytics firm working on data visualization and many, many other things. He's known on the internet as Dr. Bunsen, a moniker borrowed from a certain green-headed mad scientist of Muppets fame. How's it going, Seth? Hey, Brett. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. I'm doing well. It's great to be here. I'm excited to have you here. You, uh, you tend to, on your blog, turn, turn opinions into uh, kind of scientific studies. And I mean, much the way Dr. Drang does uh, with, uh, with some of his statistical analyses. Um, I, w- I want to know what, what drives you to analyze things the way that you do. Yeah, so, so Dr. Drang is kind of, uh, he's kind of um, been a lot of, uh, he's been an inspiration for me because when I started, when I was in college or so, he started his blog and he kind of laid the foundation for how to write, uh, you know, a technical blog post about a subject like that. So he's, he's been really uh, influential in the way that I write. Um, when I, when I, um, oh, geez, I forgot the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, it's all right. I'm, I'm looking for what, uh, what you think drives you to do this kind of thing. Oh, um, yeah, I think so. It's, it's, it's several things. I think the first thing is I, I like sharing what I'm working on. Um, I like getting feedback from other people and ideas. And, you know, often I'll learn things from other people who have maybe done similar types of things that, uh, that I'm working on. Um, and then, you know, behind the scenes, often the impetus for a lot of the blog posts that I do are um, things I'm working on at work or some new tools that I'm experimenting with. So it's kind of an excuse for me to play with something uh Maybe that I'm working on at work. Okay, so so they are they're experiments in processing data. Yeah, many of them are. Um, you know, I write about other things too, but often you know uh, doing data analysis is kind of on my mind, so that tends to flow over, I think, into uh, into my blog. And some of the topics you pick are topics that you most people would consider very opinion, very subjective kind of topics, and you you attempt to bring. Uh, data sets and and uh, information analysis to things like beer and whiskey and coffee. Uh, do you do you think that's um, do you think that's a dangerous area that that you're trying to wrangle, or is it just something that I don't know that you do for fun? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that those questions are interesting because they're hard to answer. And so I like, um, I like trying to, uh, use data to, uh, either develop an opinion or confirm an opinion or to try to give some insight into a complex problem like that. So I think it is dangerous, but I think it's also, uh, the only choice you really have to answer, you know, complex questions like that. Whereas most people would say they like the taste of something or they don't like the taste of something. You let's take beer for example. Uh, you did a you have a blog post called Beer Selection, and you pulled in data sets from Rate Beer, and I think 
Beer Buddy? Uh, yeah. The iOS app? Uh, yeah, Beer Advocate, I think, was the other data set there. Yeah. And so there's a massive number of our subjective reviews that you kind of compiled and and averaged. How would you say you, you did this? Well, I do um, I do a number of things, I think, in that post. I have to think about it. Now it's probably been uh, eight or nine months since I wrote it. But, um, yeah, I go through and I look at just what people think uh, as a collective overall about different ratings. You know, one thing I think that came out of that that surprised me was uh, most ratings are actually pretty good. Most people, I think, rate beers like a four or something like that. So it's not, you know, you would expect maybe uh, a more um, intermediate rating. I think I think most of those ratings are on a five-point scale. So, uh, you know, a two or a three or something like that. But actually, most people rate beers very highly, which was kind of surprising to me, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of my posts, um, I do try to, you know, I have, I have a reason for doing the analysis. In this case, uh, I'm not an expert in beer, and I go into the store and am kind of overwhelmed by the selection of different types of beers and the different breweries. And, you know, I just want to get in there, pick a good beer and get out. And uh, so I tried to um, I tried to explore, you know, what are the characteristics of beer that tend to be um, associated with good reviews? And so, uh, you know, that that's what I did in that post was just to look at some uh, some of the characteristics of uh, beer that's rated both uh high and low, uh, which, which was very interesting. I think like, for example, uh, um, uh, Belgian, uh, uh, Belgian beers in the 10 to 15% alcohol range tend to be very good. Uh, you know, if you were going to just pick a beer based on style, uh, that would be a very good choice. Whereas things like, um, uh, like, uh, I think Pilsner's, for example, that's generally a fairly low, uh, a low review, uh, beer. So it, it was fun to just kind of you know, go through that data and just, and just learn a little bit more about beer and, and what people's preferences were. So how does, how does the, the, uh, how do the results of this analysis affect your actual beer buying? So I tend to pay more attention to the styles of beer that, uh, were consistently rated high. So, um, when I go to a store, I tend to look at those first. That doesn't mean necessarily that, uh, you know, they're always going to be good, but I tend to feel that that is, uh, you know, a, a better a better way of trying to find good beer. Just look at style very quickly. Um, you know, I can obviously open up like Beer Buddy, as you mentioned, and do very detailed reviews, but it, it's just time consuming. So sometimes when I'm in a hurry, I try to just, um, you know, pay attention to a few of those uh, associations and, uh, you know, try to pick beers based on that. I, I can dig it. <laughs> um, my my, my uh, strategy has always been to buy one six pack of something I know I love and one six pack or a four pack of something I've never heard of before. Yeah, that's good. That's smart. <laughs> and just kind of narrow things down over time. But uh, I'm afraid that if I if I spent too much time on the data, on everyone else's opinions, mm -hmm. that I might miss something that maybe hadn't been fully covered or fully reviewed or was even poorly reviewed by someone with different tastes than mine. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get concerned that you might miss something in all of this? Well, I just, I think it's a trade-off. If you, if you, if I start randomly grabbing beer off the shelf overall, I'm probably going to have a, uh, an experience that is not as good if I would have went in with actual, you know, data to help support my decision-making. So I think, you know, the good thing about doing something like that is that you can be surprised. You know, you can find something, a diamond in the rough. You can find a beer that, uh, is something that you wouldn't really ever pick up. But, uh, I think that you will have to probably tolerate more, average to poor beers if 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 you if you do that 
I can verify that. <laughs> I like to, um, a lot of places around where I live have, uh, you can just fill up a six pack with, you know, any variety of, of oh, wow. beers that you want, which is great. Yeah. No one does that here. Really? Hmm. We, we have a, we have a kind of mediocre selection to begin with, but yeah, shopping would be a lot more fun if I could mix and match. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way to go. Oh, and, and whiskey, you cover whiskey. I, I would love to mix and match whiskey. Because, we, again, we have a limited selection, but there's enough that I can't afford to try them all. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are There's some interesting uh, people out there who have very large collections of whiskey who uh, sell off small samples of various bottles. So one good way uh, to get a broad-spectrum uh, tasting of a bunch of different regions or, or distilleries is to try to find uh, either either vendors or small uh, people who have collections um, where you can actually try small, you know, 50 milliliter samples of different whiskeys, which is great if you can find them. Yeah. You showed me a website. What was it? I did. Yeah. I think it was uh, the masters of malt master of malt. Yeah. Yeah. I have to try that. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good, good option. I've had good success with, with them. They have, uh, and a lot of their um, whiskeys, they have little sample vials that you can get, uh, where you can try, you know, really expensive whiskeys, but you don't have to buy the whole bottle. So it's actually, you know, pretty cost effective. Very uh, compared to what's the average bottle seems to be about $60. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that gets to be an expensive experiment. Yeah. You don't want to, um, pick out a bad whiskey and buy a $60 bottle. That's not good. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> yes, we all have. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually found to my surprise, a, uh, it was a cask strength that uh what's it called uh vetting uh-huh when it's a, when it's a blend of multiple casks yes um and it was actually really good it's it's inconsistent it's not always the same when i buy different bottles but uh but it's really smooth and it's despite having i think 60 65 to 68% alcohol mm-hmm. it's really palatable it's uh it's very smooth. I wish I could remember the name. It had a really weird name. Mm, yeah, I was going to ask you what the name of it was. Do you remember the distillery? I do, but again, really weird name. Yeah. Abunda. apostrophe. Yeah, you're thinking of Aberlauer. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a, a great bottle. Um, I have that in, in, my, uh, in my stash as well. Um, I hate- do you like sherry? Do you like sherry whiskeys? I honestly can't answer that. Yeah. Um, some of the whiskeys are aged in sherry uh, Oloroso casks, and so they they um, they get imbued with a sherry uh, note to them. Um, so some people really like that flavor, and some people don't. So I was just curious if you if you like that. Um, I tend to like I like them all, uh, but I probably favor Isla, the peaty. Uh, you know, like you put your head in a, a fire, uh, <laughs> the smoky flavor, um, which I, I really like. Yeah, I that's I've I've kind of battled with that because most of the ones that are recommended to me as the best are very peaty, and I haven't I don't generally love peaty. Mm-hmm. What what's the opposite of peaty? Not peaty. <laughs> I, 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 um, yeah. Probably uh, to me, like if I had to pick an opposite of peaty whiskey, it'd probably be some of the lowland whiskeys, uh, like Octantoshin or something like that. Maybe that's that's the stuff I like. Ah, interesting. 
but yeah, like again, I, I, I haven't had enough money to really truly experience. Have you ever, have you ever been to San Francisco? Yes. Have you been to cask? I have not. Next time you're in San Francisco, look up cask. Okay. It's a, uh, it's a small shop with walls of amazing whiskeys from all over the world. And, uh, and they have a bottle in the back that I think it's for sale, but it's marked $500 and it's in a glass case. Wow. It's like 24 years, something. There's a, it might, you might find it useful. There's a nice little graph. Um, I'm going to send it to you right here. Um, of, uh, it's sort of called the whiskey flavor map. Uh, and people often refer to it and it kind of has the four, I would call flavors of whiskey, smoky, rich, delicate, uh, so you can see kind of where various whiskeys fit on this map and kind of orient yourself uh, in terms of different distilleries and where they sit on this on this graph, uh, which I, I find useful. I'm, I'm, I'm logging into it. It wants to know my birthday. <laughs> oh, nice. OK, yeah, I'll link that on the uh, show notes for anyone who's curious. Great. Um, let's see. So the other the other beverage, and I don't mean to imply that your whole blog is about beverages. <laughs> They're, they're just the ones that struck me as the most, um, uh, had the widest appeal mm -hmm. to a broad audience. Um, the other one you cover is coffee, which is, uh, granted a very, uh, dangerous territory, uh, with a lot of landmines that are, you know, like people, uh, very opinionated coffee drinkers, uh, feelings about different things. And one of the data points that you, covered was uh grinding and you, as far as i'm concerned you, you found some very interesting results because it is generally accepted among coffee aficionados that the burr mill grinder is superior mm -hmm. to a blade grinder mm -hmm. um, but you found that that wasn't that uh, in blind taste tests mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily the case what what was the the overall finding there? Um, I, you know, I would say that, um, in my experience, I've, I, I think that I've never seen evidence that supports that a burr grinder makes uh, appreciable difference in, uh, in coffee. It, it might, but I can only tell you in the small number of, uh, samples that I've collected, I've never, I've never seen anything that would, that would suggest otherwise. Um, so, you know, when people, when people come to our house and, and often they stay, over and the next morning, I kind of uh, use them for various experiments often, uh, which I feel like is my uh, is, is my right. <laughs> and so I often feed them uh, or I, I serve them coffee uh, served in different ways. So one of the experiments that I will sometimes do is um, to brew coffee that's been uh, the, the beans have been ground in either a burr or a blade grinder and then see which one they prefer. And so the experiment that you're referring to uh, tests that. And, and uh, interestingly, I've just never found any, uh, any difference. Um, I've never found the burr grinder to be preferred over, over blade grinders. And, and how, uh, how set were your controls in these experiments? Same, same beans, uh, like same, same shipment. Yeah. So, you know, this isn't like a rigorous experiment, but yes, they are all uh, done with the same beans and, you know, they're all reasonably fresh and they all have the same number uh, weight in terms of uh, how much, how many, how, how, how much grounds were used to, to brew the coffee. So they're, they're, you know, not rigorous uh, experimental conditions, but they're reasonably well controlled. Um, I, I kind of started the experiment just because I, I kind of wanted to buy a burr grinder. I wanted to, I wanted to, <laughs> you know, I wanted to, uh, 
you know, find ways to get uh, better coffee. And uh, I was surprised that it really didn't seem to make a difference. That is interesting. One thing you found that I am very pleased to read is uh, that the AeroPress was generally preferred. Yeah, yeah. Another surprising result. I, well, I, I don't really think I had any preconceived notions of if it would or wouldn't uh, have an effect. But people, um, people usually after the experiment, you know, think that the I would say that the AeroPress ha- is less bitter. It's like a smoother, maybe more balanced flavor. Um, whereas like drip brew tends to be a little bit more bitter. I, I don't, I'm not like a coffee expert. I, this is just, I would say the general consensus of, uh, people that I've talked to who have stayed at our house say that. I like that about you. You, 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 you take, you take topics that you don't fully feel confident with and then collect the data to, to make it, uh, to make an informed decision in a way that I would say 99% of the population doesn't have the, uh, knowledge or energy to do. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested in all kinds of things and most of them I'm not an expert in. So it's kind of the only choice I feel like I have. I like it. Hover.com simplified domain management. You've probably registered a domain with a company that just wants to sell you services you're not interested in. Hover makes it easy. Just type in a few keywords and Hover will figure out some available domains using those terms for you like magic. There are a lot of .whatever choices out there, but Hover has some really great ones like .net. .net is a popular extension, but it still has so many domain names available, you'll be able to find the one that you're looking for. Hover just keeps getting better because they now offer Google Apps. You can now add Google Apps to a new domain or one you already own on Hover. Here's the deal. You get everything you already love about the full suite of Google's productivity apps, Gmail, Calendar, Drive, Docs, the whole package, But you know, Google's a huge company, so they can be hard to get in touch with for your questions and concerns and support needs. That's the best part. You get everything you love about Google Apps, but with the outstanding support of the team at Hover. People already love Google Apps for Gmail's 25 gigabyte storage and how easy it is to collaborate with chat and file sharing. It's a great solution for businesses, but also for families and groups who want the ability to share all kinds of stuff. If you're still not quite sure Google Apps is for you, they're offering a 30-day free trial to see what you think. Hover has real human beings available for support, and their number is right on the front page of their website. If you have any problems, just pick up the phone and call. Use the code DANSENTME or visit hover.com slash DANSENTME, and you'll get 10% off of everything you buy from hover.com. Do you ever use Hover? I, I never have, you know, and... um I haven't used them, but I've wanted to switch. I don't have really very many domains, but I've wanted to switch over to them. Uh, They seem like an awesome company. They really are. They really, especially compared. I mean, I like, I like Namecheap too. Okay. Um, But Hover has, has the superior uh, interface and service and I dig Hover much, much more than the, uh, the old GoDaddy that I used to be on. (laughs) All right. So. For part two, um, I kind of want to talk about tagging with you. Yeah, let's do it. You've done some, uh, some, some work, I believe, in uh, semantic analysis. Would that be safe to say? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so Mavericks added tagging uh, to OS X, and it covers the very, very base end of what tagging can do. Uh, basically, you can assign your own semantic tags to files and folders and then organize them using spotlight searches. 
what really intrigues me about tagging and the reason that I've, I've been doing it for so long is more of a kind of what Devin think does with, um, automatic tagging based on semantic content and analysis of content and then tag relationships. Have you ever worked with either of those? Um, yes, I have. I've worked with Devin think before, so I'm familiar with, with that. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting idea. I'm intrigued to hear kind of more about your setup and how you use it. Well, okay. So right now I use a very limited set of tags and I know on your blog that most of your posts are tagged in the way that I do as well. Uh, with kind of very narrow topic tags that are easily repeated. And I do the same thing in my file system where I tag usually no more than two tags, like a top-level context and then a project name and then maybe um, some kind of uh, more personal uh, topic tag. And those allow me to collect things from across projects in different ways. I don't, I don't repeat metadata that already exists. Things like file names, file types, dates, modified dates, stuff like that, that I can already search. I don't put into tags. So I end up with a very minimal tag set. Um, but then I got into auto tagging and in this kind of, uh, text analysis. And I found that I still needed to limit it. I had to put, I'd put together a tag collection that was kind of pre-approved and then my auto taggers would look for matches that already existed in my tag collection and then offer me suggestions for tags that I could whitelist in the future, but not overrun my system with all of these tags. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to see, I guess what that leads into though is tag relationships, understanding that this group of tags increases the chance that this other tag should be added and to have a system that's intelligent enough to figure that out. I think that's, I think that's the future, but I'm not good enough at it to make it happen. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think I'm not an an expert at natural language processing, but that would be uh, really cool. I've always kind of um, worried about tags in, uh, you know, for example, like, uh, homonyms like uh, crane, right? A crane could be a bird or it could be like a piece of uh, construction equipment. And so uh, also things to do with like plurality, you know, uh, so, you know, words kind of can be ambiguous. And so it will be interesting to see how, um, how those problems are resolved in the world of tags, um, you know, as they become more popular, like in Mavericks. Yeah. I, um, I have a very strict, kind of taxonomy, like I never use plurals, always lowercase, never have spaces. And, and it comes down to tag, tagging is a really bizarrely personal thing. Like your tag system will not be the same as someone else's tag system. And that's where like tagging in office environments gets sticky. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I mean, really, if you're going to tag something with a topic that you're going to remember in a year, it has to be something that correlates with the way you think about files. Yeah. I don't know if you have, maybe your system is more developed than mine, but often, you know, take a pinboard, for example, and I'll be reading something and I'll want to tag it. And I'll have a number of words in my mind, which I think could possibly be useful tags, but I'll forget what tags I've previously used. So I, I think that's some issue that I've struggled with is just trying to remember what the tags that you've already used are so that you can, classify what you're looking at in the correct way. 
Yeah, I, I have two ways of handling that. Mm -hmm. One is autocomplete, you know, like uh, in, in Mavericks and in Tags app and any tagging application worth its salt, um, you start typing the tag and it'll, it'll finish it for you. Um, but the other one, I have a, a command line tool that I wrote that I can give my tag collection to, uh, and it's gathered in various ways, but um, it, it culls my system for all existing tags, and then I can just type search and then partial tag, and it will tell me what tag to use. Mm -hmm. And that I do a lot of my tagging from the command line, mm -hmm. so that's kind of vital. So do you have, like, one thing I've kind of always worried about uh, with tags, and it hasn't really been an issue for me, but I'm just curious if, if you've had any experience with this. Um, like, so if you had, say, 10 files, and uh, they were all pictures of cats, you might be able to get away with like one tag or two tags that would allow you to basically refine your search and then, you know, manually look at a few pictures of cats or something. But as the number of files you have scales upward, you need more and more tags to effectively filter what it is that you're looking for. So um, as you build your tag collection, if you, if you add a new tag, do you go back to all your old files and update those files with the t that tag if it's appropriate for that file? Or I guess, how does, how does the system expand? Am I making sense? You are making perfect sense. I, um, I, I often like say, okay, we'll take the cat example. Um, if I get to a number of, of files where running a, a tag search for cat doesn't do the trick anymore, like I get overrun with search results. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'll find a defining characteristic such as color, size, etc., and I'll tag my most recent files uh, to match that. And then, if if I have the energy and time, I'll back tag, mm -hmm. um, or I'll, I'll I'll call through in this case like a thumbnail version and find all of the matching characteristics for the tag that I'm most interested in at the time. That's why I'm really careful to to use tags that aren't temporary. Right. Like a lot of people will tag things as like important or flagged. Mm -hmm. And I find that uh, I never actually go back and untag things once they are no longer important or flagged. So you end up with these huge piles of important files and nothing is important anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I'm pretty careful about adding tags. I'm very, I'm very selective about expanding the system. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if I prefer in general, when I start thinking about organizing stuff, I prefer to use a hierarchical system and I'm not sure if it's because I, I truly prefer that or it's some sort of Stockholm syndrome where I've kind of been forced to uh, work in folders and nested structures for so long that I've kind of just adapted myself to that structure. Um, like one thing I, I like about hierarchical folders is sometimes I won't know where something's stored, but I can walk down the tree and and make decisions at each branch point to determine you know where something might be. You know if there's if there's a folder called animals and then the next folder is felines and you know canines, I can I can make the right decision and walk and walk down the tree to eventually find the information. So I'm sometimes more reluctant to use tags because I'm worried that. I won't be able to necessarily find it if I don't generate the correct incantation of tags to filter the results correctly. And and that is that is the major when when designing a tagging system, you have to look forward one year at least 
and say, will I be able to remember this particular combination of tags in a year? And the answer is usually no. Mm -hmm. uh, what I do is I actually, um, I have a filing system, like a background Hazel task, and I drop all of my files on the desktop during the day. And then at the end of the day, I'll flip through them and tag them based on my, my criteria. And then this filing script actually picks them up, reads the tags, and I have certain prefixes for certain levels in the hierarchy. And um, it'll, it'll file into a hierarchical folder system, the, uh, the files, so that they remain searchable by tag. But should worse come to worse, I still have them in folders that I can drill down like that. Mm -hmm. I find that's really the only solution because you will ultimately forget uh, some of your more obscure tags uh, that may be really important to a project. But once that project is over, you forget all the correlated tags. And mm -hmm. I think, yeah, so you, folder systems are still important. So you use kind of a hybrid of the two. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I have clients, uh, consulting clients that I talk to about tags a lot and I pretty much always recommend at least a shallow folder system. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, that's the beauty of tags and spotlight is you can still put things as deeply nested as you want into folders and have all the power of tags available. Right. Yeah. That's really nice. I use, um, so I keep my, uh, I, I have kind of a file naming system where I have an ID string. That's just basically kind of a date, uh, timestamp, um, thing at the beginning of the file name. And then I use a little token and then a key. And my key is basically tags. There are several tags. So I keep it in the file name. But now that Maverick supports tags, I think that it's going to open up some really interesting possibilities. Yeah, well, and, and I should note that Maverick's tags are almost exactly the same as open meta tags have been for years. Um, like it still uses the extended attribute. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently mirroring all of my open meta tags to Mavericks tags and vice versa. Oh, that's smart. So, yeah. So I have complete compatibility between existing open meta applications that haven't upgraded to Mavericks tags yet. And, uh, I mean, they, they both, they use just slightly different extended attributes on the files. So you can, you can build a system that is backwards compatible to pre Mavericks mm -hmm. and with, and compatible with, uh, with people who happen to be on older operating systems. The biggest problem is is interoperability between operating systems. Yeah, or even sync. Like you email a file, and as uh, and IMAP will strip your tags from it. Mm -hmm. One thing I've used for a while, and I I I, I like it a lot, is um, for various projects that I work on, I basically have my own private website for that project, and so I use a lot of just things that you would find on the web, linking and. Uh, you know, almost like a wiki style, but actually just with uh, HTML and, uh, you know, CSS and things like that. Um, and, and that works really well because I can search it. Uh, things are linked to one another. Um, and uh, I, I really like that. I mean, I figure that if, if it's successful on the web, then it's going to be hopefully successful at a smaller scale, you know, for my little projects. Well, and that's one area that I am dying to see what you do with, um, that visualization of your tag collection mm -hmm. and being able to see like you click a tag and it kind of automatically figures out the related tags and starts offering you files that may not be exactly tagged what you're searching for. Right. This is kind of Devin Thinkish. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, and, and kind of wiki ish. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, does Devin think do that with images too? Can it, can it make those kind of, um, inferences based on images? I haven't used Devin think to an extent where I can answer that. Um, and I know it does some OCR. Yeah. I think, um, my, my system is very search dependent. So if I have textual data, usually I can find what I'm looking for either by looking at, at file name strings or actually searching the contents of the files. But I think a, a very interesting case is with other media like pictures or videos and how to find those things. Uh, so I think tags could and are probably the best way to sometimes filter through that kind of information. Have you ever seen Deep from Ironic Software? Yes, I. They make Leap too, right? Yes. Yes, I. I am vaguely aware of it. I think I've maybe played with it once or twice, but um, maybe do you use it? I no, I'm fascinated with it, but I, I. These days, I'm not doing enough with images to really put it to use. Yeah. But it. it I mean, it basically tags images for you based on color, size, shape, and uh, and then it. You can add your own keywords to stuff. But it, you know, it just touches that edge of, I want to find all of the blue images that fit this kind of pixel width and height, which could help you locate related images, but it doesn't get into semantics much. Like, I don't think, I don't think there's many image processing applications that could tell you this is a picture of a cat at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting problem trying to, you know, find pictures of cats among all, all pictures. I think uh, Google, Google recently published some, some data on that, but yeah, it seems like such a simple problem for, you know, a three-year-old, but yet, you know, it's very difficult for a computer. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what's very related to that though, is the face recognition in both iPhoto and Google images. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Begin to tie, tie people together by image. I've been trying to do that. So I, I have um, kind of this little custom notebook that I make that kind of has a, a digital component and a, uh, physical component, but I've tried to uh, like sketch symbols and tried to use the face recognition in Aperture to recognize those symbols. I think that would be great if they would expand the ability to recognize certain shapes by by their by their algorithms. I think that would be super useful to uh, you know classify documents like that. Have you had any luck with that? Not really. It's very uh, it's very biased towards faces. It, I've tried to train it to recognize like a triangle or something like that. It doesn't do very well yet. Hmm. That that is a very intriguing concept, though. Yeah, because I thought if I could get it to recognize images, like you know, if I had a uh, a notebook page and I had some handwriting on it, but I had a some unique symbol, uh, if I could get it to recognize the symbol automatically in the page, then you know, I could I could uh, use that almost as a tag. Yeah, or or you're working on your iPad and you have like a PDF viewer and you could just scribble an image and have it tagged. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would. Do you think do you think tags are going to be on iOS? Boy, that's a good question. Um, I'll say if I was forced to make a decision on yes or no, I would say yes. Um, I think that since there is no real file system on iOS, uh, it it begs for something um, organizational, and maybe tags fits the bill. I don't know. What do you think? I think that it's absolutely. It has to happen. I mean, Apple wouldn't have introduced tags in Mavericks yeah. if they weren't planning to make it uh, work across platforms. I'm surprised they haven't already. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it'll be very interesting to see how they implement it and to what degree it gets implemented. Um, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to hold off on building tagging systems until until they're sure those matter at all on iOS, but that can't be far off. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. All right. MailChimp.com, easy email newsletters. MailChimp helps you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate them with services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform. They help you customize your sign-up form to match your brand so you can share it on your website and integrate it into your Facebook page. You can even collect sign-ups from an iPad or a laptop. Importing an existing list into MailChimp is a snap, no matter how it's formatted. And you can personalize everything your subscribers see, including sign-up forms and confirmation emails. There's never been a better time to try MailChimp. With 2,000 subscribers, you can send 12,000 emails per month forever. Just visit MailChimp.com slash 5x5 to learn more. Let's see. That brings us to my favorite part of the show, top three picks. We'll go, uh, we'll go back and forth. So I'll let you start with your first top pick of the week. Okay, um, so for my first pick, um, I'm going to pick the Acme Klein bottle. Uh, so this is um, this is a very very cool uh, little gizmo here. So um, if there are any uh, topologists out there, they'll appreciate this choice, uh, this pick. So this is um, this is a, a bottle uh, that you can store liquids in, but um, its inside is its outside. Uh, so it actually contains itself. So it's this very interesting uh, topological enigma. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, the Mobius strip, you'll appreciate the Klein bottle. So it's uh, it, it has no edges. Uh, it's hard to explain on a podcast, <laughs> but the bottle itself is very cool. It'll it'll kind of like bend your mind a little bit when you look at it. It it is. So what's the uh, what's the practical application of it? Um, there isn't really much practical application other than it's just a really cool shape. Uh, you know, I'm not a topologist, so maybe someone in the audience will have uh, a practical application for it. But it's just um, it's just an interesting thought experiment in Euclidean space. And there's no three dimensional representation of this particular uh, surface uh, in, in, in 3D, which is which is interesting. Can you put whiskey in it? Yes, you can. You can put whiskey. In it. It's not the it's it's not the most um, practical vessel for holding liquid, but it will it will hold whiskey. Uh, yeah, that's interesting because I don't, there's no real air escape when you're filling one of these. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm honestly not sure what to make of it, <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking at it and it looks very, uh, like a great conversation piece. Yeah. It's for the person who, who already has everything. <laughs> and an interest in topology. Well, I find people just find it fascinating. Like they'll just pick it up and kind of think about it for a minute and, you know, it will kind of mess with the mind. Okay. I, I, I do enjoy messing with, uh, <laughs> with the mind of, especially of house guests. Excellent. Keeps them from staying too long. <laughs> All right. What's, what's your first pick? My first pick is going to be the dark energy reservoir. Uh, it's a it's a battery pack. It's the size of an iPhone, just barely bigger than an iPhone. But it can, off of one charge, uh, completely fill my iPhone six times before I have to recharge it. Very cool. And and I have verified this. I have traveled with it, and it's lightweight. And it takes. I'm trying to remember how long it takes to charge because I usually just leave it overnight. But it's not terribly long. Couple hours. 
and then uh, I pack it and I can go on a week long trip and never have to recharge it, but I always have power for my phone. So do you keep it plugged in or it just does, it, it just sends, it just refills the battery, you know, for you, you keep it plugged in for like a short period of time and then it refills the battery. Yeah. 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 It's like plugging into a wall outlet. It has two USB ports on it. So you can do two devices at once. And I just, you know, jack my phone in, wait for it to fill up and then unplug. Have you ever tried recharging your computer? Rechar like my Mac? Yeah. Is there any way to do that? Um, no, I don't, I don't think it would be viable for that. I do have, uh, I forget what they're called. It's a, it's a power supply. It's about, uh, eight inches by maybe six inches. And it has a port that you can plug the, uh, airplane adapter into, uh, for power. Mm -hmm. And that'll recharge my MacBook air pretty quickly, but it takes hours to charge and is only good for about one charge on a computer. Yeah, this is really cool. I don't travel a ton, but I could see, you know, a lot of interesting uses for this, uh, even without traveling much. Yeah. I've been loaning it to my wife who travels much more than I do these days. And, and she has had no issues with it. Cool. They are, they're, they're not cheap. It's $114 for a, a single one and you can get two for 234, which doesn't seem like any kind of deal to me. <laughs> I get 200. Yeah, that's actually more expensive than buying two single ones. Why would they do that? I do not know. That's crazy. <laughs> so just go get one reservoir. Yes, it All seems right. like a little air in the maths. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really does. All right, so what's your second pick? Okay, uh, for my second pick, I'm going to pick an iOS app uh, that I really enjoy uh, called Peaks. And this um, is an augmented reality app, uh, which I find really useful. I live uh, in the mountains, and this app uh, will annotate peaks that are around you. So you can point your phone, uh, for example, to some peak, and you might want to you know, know what mountain that is, and it will, it will tell you what it is and tell you how high it is and... Uh, find it really useful for kind of orienting myself uh, uh, among the mountains. So it, maybe it's it's kind of a niche that not as many people will be interested in, but I, I think it's a really cool app. It, it, it looks cool. I, I have no mountains around me. I live in a very, uh, we call them bluffs. I don't know if everyone calls them bluffs, but uh, like the unglaciated part of Minnesota. So it's all peaks and valleys, but we have none. We have, we have very few that actually have names. Um, but the times that I've driven through Vermont and New Hampshire, I have often wondered. So I think that would be definitely for my next East Coast trip and probably for my next uh, Southwest Coast, Southwest trip. I'm going to pick that up. Excellent. Have you ever seen um, uh, apps like Go Skywatch? No, I, like do, I don't they know. do a similar thing for stars. Oh, yes. Um, yes, I, I've used one. Uh, what's it called? Constellations, maybe. I don't know if it's the same idea. I think it's called Constellations. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. Very cool. Yeah. You can, like, there's another one, Sky Map or something. Yeah, you just hold them up, you point them at stars, and it tells you what you're looking at. And that is, for someone who's who's interested in astronomy, but not an expert in astronomy, it lets you look really cool when you're talking to your friends. And you're like, oh, look at that. That's, uh, oh, there it is. It's Venus. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's really neat. I'm looking at yeah. it right now. Um, I also, I do a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot. I used to do more, um, uh, remote, like internet based, uh, space photography. Oh, really? Wow. 
Yeah, where you can like rent a telescope and then control it over the internet. And, uh, and it, it, being able to read the weather maps and then figure out from the location that the telescope is in what the visible objects that are going to work best are is, uh, it's a learned, learned science. Yeah, that's cool. So you have lots of pictures of, uh, images that you've taken? Yeah, I have a pretty good collection wow. and, and they blow me away. Like, I can't believe, uh, yeah. So, I mean, the telescope's a huge, major part of it, but, you know, I, I clicked the button. I took that picture. That's right. I like it. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, yeah, the, the, the site I used to use for that has gone out of business. Um, but iTelescope, I think, is the one that I'm most interested in right now, but it's, uh, it's in fledgling state. Anyway, anyway, what were we on? My second Yes, tip? sir. All right. So it's, it's holiday season. And, uh, so my second pick is technically Sanebox, but I want to pick the Sanebox subscription that you can gift to people. Um, so if you go to sanebox.com slash give, you can give people their own sanity in their inbox. Um, and what Sanebox does is it, it uses a, an intelligent set of filters, uh, on a Gmail account. And I think they're working on IMAP. I'm not sure if it has regular IMAP support yet. Um, I should know that before I start talking about them, but I use it with my Gmail account and it takes, uh, your, your inbox and figures out what is of immediate importance. Uh, what, what are messages from people, you know, to you personally, not part of chains, not part of lists, not part of, uh, any kind of mass forward or any kind of newsletter and anything that's not of immediate importance, it moves into a, an at later folder and you can kind of collect those and then browse through them, browse through them at the end of the day. And it also has extra folders for like bulk mail and uh, newsletters, and it can kind of sort all of these out for you. And you can, you can then review them at your leisure, but your actual inbox and the flag on your desktop and in iOS on your mail app are going to always read just the numbers of messages that are actually pertinent to your day. I find it very, um, liberating. Yeah. Do you get a lot of email then? I, I take it. I, I get a fair amount of email. Um, Sanebox actually, according to my statistics on the site, I think about 70% of my email gets filtered away. Wow. So it leaves me with, I think, Probably, if I checked once an hour, I'd probably see maybe 10 to 15 emails that actually matter. I see that it's Tony Robbins approved, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing you can do is you can create um, kind of deferral box mailboxes. So I have one called uh, Give Me a Sec. And when I drop, when I move a message into the Give Me a Sec folder, it hides it. It goes away and it sends it back to me as a new message in three hours. Oh, interesting. That's that's kind of uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, maybe OmniFocus, like defer till later. Uh, yeah. Very cool. Yes. And and then my system is is tightly tied into my task managers because I, I refuse to use my inbox as like a to-do list. Mm -hmm. So if something if something's going to be read, it's going to be immediately filed into OmniFocus or into NVAlt as information, but nothing, nothing stays in my inbox. 
yeah, I don't use my, I don't get very many email, but very many email messages, but yeah, I do the same thing. I don't really keep anything in there. Yeah, it works well. It works really well. So you should give the Sanebox subscription, which I think starts at like $39 is a decent, uh, a decent gift. So it's not a terribly expensive way to brighten someone's tech day. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So you have number three. Yes. Okay. So uh, this morning I was in the kitchen thinking about what the heck I was going to pick that hadn't already been picked. There's so many good Mac apps and they've all, many of them have been uh, picked already. So I didn't want to repeat, uh, but I was in the kitchen and I was making a breakfast smoothie with my awesome Vitamix. And so I'm going to pick the Vitamix uh, as my third pick. It seems like a strange choice, uh, but um, it's really awesome. So if you've never seen the Vitamix before, it's this really um, powerful blender and you can make soups in it, shakes, smoothies. Uh, you can do all kinds of things in it. It's like probably one of the most used appliances in our kitchen. Um, and uh, if you've ever used a traditional blender, I, I've always found them to be really bad at blending things. But this Vitamix <laughs> is, uh, you know, it, it sounds like a lawnmower when it's uh, when it's grinding stuff up, but it's uh, really, really well, uh, well made and uh, works very well. So highly recommended. So which model do you have? I have whatever um, the lowest model is. I think I have the 5200. We, we bought actually a refurbished unit uh, and it's great. We never had any problems with it. I think it's called the Vitamix 5200. There, there are several 5200s on the website. The <laughs> cheapest one, the cheapest of their models is the Turbo Blend 2 speed. Okay. I, which comes in at $400. I have the Vitamix 5200 standard, which is $449. I, I, we bought the refurbished unit, which is maybe like $350 or something okay. like that. But um, it seems like a lot for a blender, but it's um, it's very, very good. So this is what you bought instead of a Burmel grinder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need to run some nice. tests on the Vitamix now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I could definitely do with that. Uh, my, my low-end Cuisinart has not been cutting it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it actually can heat things up too. It's got so much power that if you blend things for long enough, it will warm them up. Is that a good thing or a bad? I don't thing? know. <laughs> I suppose you could find uses for that. Yeah, I think I think they uh, advertise uh, that capability for soups and things. So you could like make a squash uh, butternut squash bisque or something like that, maybe hot and ready to pour. Yeah, I've never done that, but uh, you, can, nice. you can also grind up uh, like. Uh, we often will make almond butter. So just take a bunch of uh, almonds, put them in the Vitamix, and you have almond butter. Or, you know, take grains and grind them up into uh, flours and things of that nature. Nice. I, I definitely, if I can justify the expense and get it past my wife, <laughs> that sounds like the definite uh, replacement for what is currently in my kitchen. Not cutting it, not blending it. Mm-hmm. All right. So my last pick is, and this is inspired by Chuck Joyner. Uh, I did a holiday gift guide with him on uh, on MacJury recently. And I'll link that because I think there were a lot of good tips in there. Um, but one of his tips was iTunes gift cards, uh, either for yourself or for somebody else. Because right now, this time of year, you can pick them up for... Uh, usually like 20% off. But if you buy them, if you buy a lot, if you buy two to $400 worth, uh, because you have to look at your spending habits. But for me, I will spend that much on iTunes and these never expire. So you're saving 
$20 every $100 you spend over the next, you know, year, two years. And it, that's a great way to give gifts that save you a little money and are of, you know, a very high value to the people who get them. It's also a great way to stock up your own iTunes account, especially if, if you're like me and you, you tend to try apps on a whim without the, uh, without the try before you buy system. It's uh it's a great way to kind of um, defer some of the cost of that kind of addiction. <laughs> and you get the discount. Exactly. It kind of reminds me of, uh, oh, what, what is his name? I think it's um, Dave Phillips, uh, the guy who did all the uh, pudding uh, air travel redemption um, uh, coupons. You remember that? So, he, no. uh, so this guy, I think, was maybe like an aerospace engineer or something, but he realized uh, that there was a company, I think, that was was giving away airline miles uh, when when you bought these pudding cups, if I if I remember correctly. And uh, he realized the that somebody made a mistake. And if you bought like you know hundreds and hundreds of these pudding cups, you could basically like travel anywhere you wanted to for life for free, or something like that. <laughs> so it, it's a it's a pretty interesting story about this guy who basically like went out and bought tons of these pudding cups to uh, to basically fuel his. Uh, airline travel for like the rest of his life. I will, uh, I, I put down a note to Google pudding cup airline travel. <laughs> Good luck remembering that in a few hours. I'll see, <laughs> see if I can find a link for the show notes on that one. Shutterstock.com where you'll find over 28 million images, stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and 1 million video clips. Start your search at shutterstock.com to find that perfect image for your website, ad publication, or any other creative project. Shutterstock.com gives you a global image collection to find images from around the world to suit your project. Choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages. Choose whatever fits your need and never have to compromise. If you need just one image for your blog or mock-up, you can do that too. Every time you visit Shutterstock, you'll find something new because they add 20,000 new images every day and 12,000 videos every week. It's more affordable than you think too, with no extra charge for large files. Just download any image at any size and pay only one price. They don't nickel and dime you for high-resolution images. If you need them, just take them. Easily curate and share your pictures via Lightboxes. You can choose your favorite pictures or videos and add them to your own Lightbox gallery as you search. You can also use your iPad app to do this. Then there's something called Enhanced License Access. If you like an image and you want to run it on print or swag for your trade shows, then get you an enhanced license for any image. They also have a huge library of vectors, icons, infographic templates, and video clips should you need any of those. If you need help at Shutterstock.com, you get an account rep dedicated to you who will answer any questions, and they even have 24-hour support during the week. To sign up for a free browse account, go to Shutterstock.com, no credit card needed. When you find the images you like and decide to purchase, use the offer code DANSENTME1213 and get 25% off any package you put together over at Shutterstock.com. And that brings us to the sign-off. Saddest part of the show. Let's see. You can be found at uh, twitter.com. I'm gonna, I'm, I have these written down. Excellent. <laughs> so, okay, so you're at twitter.com slash drbunsen, Dr. Bunsen. Also on app.net as Dr. Bunsen. And can be found on the web as uh, or at drbunsen.org. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Nope, I think you covered it. I oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I usually I, I usually forget to like prepare that part. I give you a, I, I give you a good send off. Yeah, that was pro. <laughs>
All right. And I am Brett Terpstra, and I am TT Scoff everywhere. And I blog at brettterpstra.com. And uh, my my exploits are not nearly as detailed or scientific as uh, as Seth, but oh, I do try to I do try to uh, do the mad science thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not true. You have you have awesome mad science going on there. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. I uh, I'm humbled by your uh, your praise. All right, so. That was episode 73. Thanks a ton for being here, Seth. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was really fun. And we will see everybody in a week. <laughs>